You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. John Scalzi is the author of Old Man's War, The Last Colony, Red Shirts, and the Kaiju Preservation Society, among many others. They're all great. And his latest novel, which gets even better, is Starter Villain. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks. Good to be here. This is a, a, such an interesting novel because it's... It, um, is a great example of the secret society, secrets of society novel in which you take the ordinary world and then reveal to us some part of that world underneath that nobody knows about but makes perfect sense. And I have to think that you must have put a lot of work into making sure that this secret world you created made a lot of sense. Well, and that's the whole point of it, right? In for something like this, where you are looking at something that is a trope, something that is, you know, not particularly realistic in the real world, um, like super villainy, um, you want to start looking at the things that uh, actually would make it make sense, the things that make it all of a sudden plausible. Um, and the example that I like to give about this is. Um, there is a volcano layer in this book because it's about, you know, villains. And of course, a villain has a, uh, you know, a volcano layer. And the real question is, but why? Why would you have a volcano layer? And the answer is, uh, and I asked this at conventions, and of course, they're all nerds. So they're like, oh, I know, I know. It's geothermal energy. And you're like, absolutely right. It makes perfect sense to have a volcano layer because you have all that free energy for, you know, lasers and things like that. And so you start looking at all the ways that these ridiculous villains in you know particularly movies where they're designed only to be logical within the framework of that particular story like if you start picking them apart they make no sense um part of my fun part of the thing that i really enjoyed is you know plugging in plausibility to previously uh implausible people and also too i think you do a great job of setting up you know the real world character is such an interesting character he's an average guy who you know has you know he has brothers and sisters lives in barrington pennsylvania i mean there's such an almost absurd amount of normalcy at the beginning of this book and I, yeah. I, it struck me that that was, you know, deeply purposeful for the way the book unfolds. Sure. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do was, you know, make it clear from the beginning that, you know, our hero, our protagonist uh, is completely uh, in over his head. He's not someone who is not, he's not unintelligent. He's not that he doesn't have capabilities, but it is absolutely a brand new situation for him. And you have to give reasons for him to have been in a situation where going into 
the deep end of this pool that he's never, you know, associated with before actually makes sense for his life. Um, and also, I think, uh, especially now, a lot of people understand the idea of having started a career in one place uh, and having to take a weird turn and ending up somewhere else. Our protagonist uh, was a newspaper journalist, you know, worked in business, um, and then he got a divorce. His dad got ill. He went back home to take care of his dad um, and started doing substitute teaching because that was the thing that made the most sense for him to do at the time. Um, and then all of a sudden, that's where his his life is. And I think a lot of people can relate to um, the idea that events in just your day-to-day -day life can all of a sudden take you places that you didn't expect. You know, that's, I think, one of the universal truths that's often ignored in, in literature. And the other thing, too, that's interesting is the way that I think that you uh, turn the perspective on the ordinary world kind of upside down so that, I mean, in a sense, we already live in a world that's filled with supervillains. I mean, you know, very typically try either run countries or try to run countries or, or run giant corporations. I mean, the we our world is replete with this personality type already. Sure. I mean, and that's part of it. I mean, I, I don't want to say that I got lucky with a bunch of billionaires just deciding to go mask off recently um, because that seems like a very um selfish point of view is like how how awesome is it that all these billionaires just went you know like screw it, i'm gonna just do what i want to do and there you are but in fact um you know it's well it's unintentionally well timed i wrote this uh you know more than a year ago without knowing that you know this was going to be the summer of bad billionaire behavior um but it's certainly uh, feels much more timely now than it than it might have uh, otherwise been. But also, you know, quite frankly, and this is part of the uh, book as well, these, you know, billionaires with bad attitudes have been part of uh, society for literally, you know, decades. This, the stuff that our bad billionaires are doing now are the things that the billionaires were doing in the 1880s and 90s when we had the Gilded Age in the United States or the previous Gilded Age. So in many ways, um, it's not a surprise uh, that we are all of a sudden confronted with these you know, captains of industry and bulletproof billionaires um, because they have ever been with us. And what is important is, is how we approach them and uh, what we learn from the experience of having to deal with their crap. You know, um, too, uh, I think one of the things that you do well is to give this book uh, kind of a wide breadth when we learn to, un as we come to understand how this, uh, this society happened, the secret society, as it were, you reach back into history and do a really good job at creating this, you know, the, the backdrop, the history you just referred to, um, and bringing that to the forefront, making all this stuff very plausible. Yeah, well, but that's the, you know, that's the whole point of, uh, you know, writing kind of a science fiction one, even if it is grounded in normal time. Um, 
is that you have to have at least a thin veneer of plausibility. You want to get them, you want to get your audience going, okay, I can see where you came to here um, and then have the jumping off point. So yes, I mean, having this secret society of supervillains that got its start in the Boer War, right? Um, you know, that and giving it some sort of grounding of why, why it happened or what, like I said, why you have the volcano lair or how that volcano lair came into possession uh, to the uh, person who uh, left everything to our hero. Um, all of that stuff, you want to make it sound reasonable so that when you get to the frankly ridiculous and unreasonable things that are in the book, which there absolutely are, um, that's, you've already walked them all the way down the plank, right? They have no choice but to dive right in. You know, one of the ways you do this is, I think, just a really marvelous sense of prose and plotting. Uh, your prose and your sense of working, a sense of humor into what you do through this is really, I think, meticulous. Um, it's funny all the time, and you modulate that humor so that it's not just always at one level, but right. it kind of goes through different modulations. It's just a joy to read this book. And part of the reason, too, is that we just like pretty much everybody we meet in this book. There's a couple <laughs> who are who are fewer, even, even the the worst of the bad guys are, are pretty damn entertaining. To say the well, least. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, you know, that's the thing you want to, you want to make sure that they don't all hit the same note. Right. But you do want to make sure um, that you are putting uh, people in a situation where however long it takes them to read the book, whether it's five hours or three days or a month or whatever, they're going to be with those characters. So even if they're characters that they don't like, you still want them to be able to, you know, enjoy the experience of, of uh, you know, going along with them. And as you know, I mean, some of the people's favorite characters are villains anyway, right? Um, everybody loves a good bad guy. Um, so, uh, you know, putting some of those good, you know, enjoyable bad guys in there is, uh, you know, I think, uh, just doing, doing what people want in the first place. But beyond that, I think you hit on something that I want it to be funny. And in some places it comes right up to the edge of, of, of farce, but you do have to, you can't just hit the same nail every single time. You have to have peaks and you have to have valleys and you have to have moments of, even within the context of the story, um, some genuine uh, emotion. I mean, I have a, a, a funeral scene where uh, our hero is um, attend, you know, is asked to stand for uh, his uncle who has passed away, um, and he has a couple moments where he's just thinking about the relationship he did not have with his uncle, um, and and those are real emotions. So that later on in that scene when some weird things start happening um you have a bit of dynamic range you can't just uh, you can't just as you say not modulate it and just have here's the funny here's the funny here's the funny because then it stops being funny um and also um you know that sort of humor while it can be done um really takes um both 
a an immense amount of skill on the part of the writer uh, and an immense amount of acceptance on the part of the reader. Both of them really have to be up for it. And most of the time, um, most people are just like, tell me a good story. So I give them the peaks and the valleys and everything else. Well, one of the things that I would think about, especially upon finishing this book, was how good the whole, you know, the overall story arc of this book, which I don't want to give away, is richly <laughs> satisfying. I mean, when I finished this book, I just thought, wow, that is just a really great story. And you can think back on how it starts out kind of, you know, very quietly, and it just climbs up that ramp till it reaches some uh, pretty high craziness. And it's a lot of fun, and it's a, a lot of, you know, there's action in there, but not too much. I mean, your yeah. sense of restraint in this book is something that you don't really notice ever, but I think it makes it like it takes it to a, a different level in terms of being a just a wonderfully great story. Well, thank you. I mean, the good news is that I had, I think, 15 or 16 novels under my belt before I wrote this one. Um, and that really does help um, because you've had that much time to practice, you know, how to structure a story. Um, but I also think, um, you know, that there is the thing of people, when you tell a story like this, people have some idea of the arc of the thing. They, they have an idea of where it's going to go. And I think that the really interesting thing for the writer is creating that tension between what people uh, think they want and what they expect and what you can provide them that they didn't know they wanted until you present it to them on the page. And that is, that is always fascinating too, because if you always give people exactly what they want, you know, that's fine and you, you, you'll have an audience and stuff like that. But if every once in a while you can give them um, that sort of surprise or that left turn or the story doesn't go exactly where you thought it would go um, and gives them um, a slightly uh, different experience than they thought they were going to get going in, um, but still enjoyable, still a, you know, a, a, a ride that they would want to go on one more time, um, then I think you're doing all right. And it also means that the book sticks in their memory a little bit better than it would otherwise. You know, too, one of the things about this novel is, as I read it, I was completely immersed in the story, and I followed where it went, and it was only really afterwards that as I, like, started to think about the book, and it warranted that thought, and attracted that thought, I kept thinking, wow, this is just, like, so well done. There's so much skill here. But it's not skill that calls out to you and says, oh, look at my incredibly poetic prose or look at this incredible plot or any of that stuff. It's just the kind of skill that puts together the whole thing and says, this is the whole novel that I'm giving you. And this is why Ridley Scott was just dead wrong in 1984 and he said the novel's dead because you do things in novels that you just can't do in any other medium. Sure. But also, I mean, I think that there's, uh, but there was also the experience that I had in film and TV that actually plays into exactly what you're talking about. I was the 
creative consultant for Stargate Universe, which is a TV show. Um, and one of our goals, um, and one of my goals as the creative consultant is, I wanted to help them make stories that for the hour that people were watching it, right? They just went with the story. And it wasn't until the episode was done and they're heading towards the fridge where they're like, now, wait a minute. And they start thinking about, you know, either um, some of the deeper themes that were in it or some of the implausibilities or whatever. The point of it was that for that hour that you had their attention within that world and they weren't thinking about anything other than what was going on in the moment. When I'm trying to write novels, what I want you to do is I want you to be in the world that the novel creates. I want you to go through the circumstances in the same way that the characters are going. I want you to hit those high notes when they hit them. I want you to hit the low notes when they do them. And then when you close the book, I want you, then is when I want you to be thinking about some of the deeper themes or some of the ideas and so on and so forth. I want you just to enjoy the ride, but at the end of it, realize uh, what has gone into the ride that made it so enjoyable. But I don't want you, I don't want to pull people out of it, like you said, by, you know, calling attention to, you know, the construction of, of the story or uh, the way that the, the, the writing particularly does what it does. I want to very, first and foremost um, entertain people. Now, and there's nothing wrong with the sort of book that you immediately are confronted just by how beautiful the prose is, for example. Um, that is its own form of entertainment. And I have the writers that I love um, where I basically read their books for the sentences, not for the plot. Um, but I also know myself well enough to know that I'm not that kind of writer. Um, so I better have a story. <laughs> um, I have an audience, even as we speak, uh, of two pugs. They, they are asleep. Mm -hmm. and, um, you, you include some characters in this book who, who are not human. So, I've asked you about one kind of weird little point you you talk about. Are there, can I go on to, I guess, uh, one of the online retailers and buy a special pad so I can teach my dog to communicate with me? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are, um, there are in fact keyboards that are designed for pets, mostly for cats, but also for dogs as well, where you can train them to that, each particular button has a phrase or a an idea. And so like one of them will be treat. And if they press the button, then they give them a treat or another one that says walk. And if they go, you know, that's them letting you know that they want to go on a walk or they want a treat or they're unhappy or they want to be entertained or something like that. Um, Mary Robinette Cole, who is a, a very, very fine writer, um, and has a whole setup for her cat, Elsie, um, where the cat has conversations with her just by pressing the buttons. And you can have that discussion about, does the cat actually understand that each button has a specific 
concept behind it or has it just learned that that the yellow button here means one thing and a blue button here means the other and what it all means but it's absolutely a thing that that people do and certainly i think that um animal intelligence while vastly different from human intelligence there's a there's an interface there right there was a famous um, Australian shepherd that basically had a thousand word vocabulary and the uh, and the trainer would say go get me the blue monkey right and she would go and she would get that specific thing she knew what blue was she knew what monkey was um, and she knew what go uh, meant as well um, so it's entirely possible that there is some real potential for cross-species communication that is kind of verbal. I mean, you have to set your expectations in the real world as to what that sort of communication will be. And gosh, you know, I mean, I know what my dog's thinking a whole lot, even without words. We were out walking today and just by the way that she was moving and just by the way that she was um, sort of distancing herself from me as we went on a walk on our property, I knew that she was about to bolt to my neighbor's horse paddock so that she could go play with the horses and roll around in the horse poop. Um, so as soon as she started giving me kind of looking back to see how much distance was between me and her so she could sprint, I just went up to her and I clipped her in with the, you know, with the leash and she immediately just sat down on the floor uh, on the grass and was like, I'm not moving anywhere because you, you figured out what I was going to do. And she was incredibly sad, but that was definitely communication. I knew what she was doing. She knew what I was doing. We were having a moment of conversation, even without words. You know, I, I, I am of the opinion that, you know, animals, most animals have a lot more intelligence than we give them credit for. It's just shaped quite differently from ours by their morphology and, and you know their who, who how they're shaped they you know dogs can bark that's what they can do they're good at that um right but I, I, one of the things i think that's also true is that you know we look at a cat that's just sitting there on the table or on the chair and we can just project a whole conversation with that cat and i think you do a great job uh of giving us an idea what cats and in particular dolphins <laughs> how yeah. they would treat us and your dolphin characters are absolutely to die for and i think you do a good job at just turning animals into characters and that's a you know a notable feat because i mean most people have a hard time creating human characters and for you to <laughs> Or you to create well, animal characters is is a is a you know it's a remarkable. Well, you know the thing is though, I mean, every, I have three cats and a dog, right? And each of them has a very distinct personality. I mean, uh, Spice the cat uh, is kind of neurotic, and she always sits on my desk and wants my attention and just wants to be near me. Uh, Sugar the cat is a pretty, pretty princess and is just upset that the world does not revolve around her. Smudge the cat is a chaos demon and will just, you know, introduce uh, anarchy wherever he goes. 
you know, our, our dog is really smart, but also really lazy, you know, and you put all that together, they have uh, distinct personalities and everybody's pet has distinct personalities as well. And it's, so it's no different than when you are trying to create human characters. You don't want to make all your human characters sound alike and you don't want all your um, non-human characters uh, to sound alike either. I have other animal characters in my, in my books in uh, Fuzzy Nations. We have Carl the dog. Um, there is, um, you know, Babar the dog and the uh, Last Colony and Zoe's Tale. Um, and each of them um, has very distinct personalities. So I had a little practice before uh, this book doing that, but also, you know, uh, with particular in, in respect to dolphins, and we don't want to get into and spoil it too much for, for people, but one of the things that's been fascinating about dolphins is, um, you know, just the reports of, you know, there's the image that people have of dolphins, the friendly clowns of the sea, and then the reality of what dolphins are, like if you talk to cetacean uh, you know, uh, biologists, they're like, oh no, they're monsters. They're just the worst people whatsoever. And so when you, and so you incorporate that knowledge of, of who they are as a species and what they do um, into uh, the characters and that, that sort of makes it uh, a, lot, a lot more fun um, to do stuff. But again, even with the cat characters and the dolphin characters, and again, not getting into it, um, you want to make them fully dimensional. You want them to actually be people that people um, can, if they don't identify with at the very least, um, see them as understandable for their motivations and for um, you know the rationales for the things that they do uh, in the course of the book. Basically, it's treating, it's treating the animal characters with the same amount of respect um, as you would treat the human characters. And that's not that difficult. Uh, I think maybe <laughs> you might say that, but I, I think as a reader, it just felt remarkable to walk away from this book and think, you know, I can remember the odd names of these animal characters and their characters, as well as the humans. And that's, you know, a rem remarkable feat. Uh, one of the things I think that um, all, you also do, and, and you know, the uh, hope that you play off of well, is the idea that the the villains rarely think of themselves or see themselves a, a, as as villains, and, and in real life too. People, the people we consider villains in this world probably you know see themselves as being you know heroes for their people or whatever so talk about taking that trope and i think you would do a good job of you know examining it from upside down sideways inverted in the mirror and uh from the other side of the mirror looking at the creature there sure well i mean i think the thing that you know the idea that everybody is the hero of their own story which i think is uh, is where you're going with that um i think is absolutely true i mean even if they don't see themselves as a hero even if they don't see themselves as a good guy even if they revel in the idea you know i'm coming into this scene as the bad guy they're always seeing themselves as the protagonist they're always seeing themselves as having 
a good reason for the things that they do. It's very rare that you will have uh, either in real life or in literature, um, someone who is just a complete nihilist and, you know, why are they doing it? Because they want to set the world on fire. You know, um, it's very rare that you will actually have that uh, particular character um, and have that character have an examined life within the context of what they're doing. So for me, I mean, I think it's important that everybody knows why they are doing the things they're doing and it makes sense for them to do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're good people or that they see themselves as good people or that uh, they don't recognize that their aims or goals are not are not generally seen as bad, but they don't, you know, either they don't care or they're like, okay, so it's bad, but in the meantime, I'm rich, so it doesn't matter what you think anyway, right? Uh, that there is, you know, there is that belief, you know, it's like once you, you know, once you make your first billion, you don't have to really care what anybody thinks anymore. You're absolutely untouchable. So you might as well start being a horrible bigot or, you know, start saying, uh, you know, for, you know, terrible things or go, why don't we in fact harvest the blood of the young so that I can live forever, which is a thing that is actually out there at the moment. So the, that's the, the, the detachment from reality is less about them being, you know, classical sociopaths with no connection, um, but other, but, but actually, now that I'm at this particular tranche of society, my issues and problems and concerns are so radically different um, that they just seem, they seem incomprehensible to others, but for me, they make perfect sense. You always have to, you always have to have that contextualization. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to disagree with the idea that a billionaire's set of problems is different than the set of problems that someone who makes $60,000 a year uh, has, right? The billionaire is not worried about you know, money, right? Um, and the billionaire is not worried about um, you know, what he, he or she is going to leave for their kids or any of that sort of stuff. Their, their entire tranche of issues and concerns and problems um, is incredibly esoteric. But they take them seriously because for them, it's those are real problems. Those are the things that are weighing on their mind. Um, and so, uh, again, being able to, I don't want to say empathize with billionaires, but just understand that the billionaire mindset is necessarily going to be different simply because you know, there are things they don't have to think about. And I understand that I'm, you know, it's like, I don't worry about gas, how much gas costs anymore, because I know I can fill up my gas tank, right? You know, um, and when you get to that point where you're like, I'm not worried about whether gas is $3 or $5, right? Um, because I know I have it. Um, then honestly, that is a, that means a whole group of concerns, you know, related to gas or related to, you know, the sort of things that people have to like, how am I gonna Jenga together paying for everything I need to pay for this week are simply not problems you worry about anymore. In return, you get other sorts of problems. Um, and those problems, other people may not be able to directly relate to. Now take that on a very simple level 
and multiply it by literally, you know, an exponent. And now you have billionaire problems. You know, one of the things I think you do pretty well is economics is called the dismal science because it's fairly dull and boring in, you know, trying to learn the basics of it. But you do a great job of figuring out the economics of billionaires. In a sense, even it's not even that. It's exposing that, you know, it's easy to claim to be wealthy. And, and you know, I, I can say, you know, I'm, I, I'm a multimillionaire. I've, I've paid multi-millions dollars worth of bills. <laughs> <laughs> and I, mean, I owe a lot of money to people and i think that 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 whole way that whole discussion that kind of underpins this book in many ways it is something that you know matters to us as a nation greatly mm -hmm. but but also it's fun to read and for you to make take economics and make it fun to read wow that's an accomplishment again not the kind of thing you notice when you're reading because you're just just entertaining thinking, well, what that's an interesting sure. idea. Well, I mean, I've been very poor in my life and I've been very not poor in my life. Um, the very not poor is better. Um, but also, I mean, it gives you, it does give you perspective. Um, having gone from someone who, who growing up um, you know, was a welfare kid and got free lunch at school and, you know, had the scholarships to the point where, you know, I, I tell my wife, we live in a socialist utopia. She and I live in a socialist utopia because we literally have enough money that everything is taken care of for us on a very basic level. Um, and that, that range of things uh, matters. I've also gone to, um, private boarding school in high school. I went to the University of Chicago, which is an elite school. Um, I have hobnobbed with, you know, I have literally hobnobbed with billionaires and millionaires and, you know, captains of industry and uh, movie stars and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I've been fortunate to sort of have the first um, firsthand experience either uh, in my own lifetime uh, with my own set of people that I know, um, or been able to observe um, just basically how that uh, all all comes together. Um, and like I said, the concerns of someone who has $50,000 is very different from the concerns of someone who has 50 million or 50 billion. Um, but there is always a dynamic and because we live in essentially a capitalist society um, that money always underpins a, a lot. So um, being able to tap into what is the specific anxiety, financial anxiety at this particular level, as opposed to, you know, that particular level, um, and just use it as a setting. You don't have to sit there and talk about, you know, uh, you know, various economic theories and, and, and so forth. Uh, but it's fun to, uh, you know, have that as the background. And it's also fun to remind people as, as they, does in the book at one point or another, that money is entirely a delusion, right? It is absolutely a thing that we have made up uh, in order to 
continue through the society that we've it is a figment of our collective imagination in the same way that for example language is a, a collective uh, figment of our imagination we have made up language and it serves a very specific purpose um, which is to communicate with each other and, and achieve goals in the same sort of manner uh, money is a collective uh, thing that we have made up because it serves a very specific uh, purpose of allowing us to uh, trade and get things from each other uh, in a in a more seamless way than we might otherwise. But uh, you know, bringing that up to to people always weirds them out. Like whenever they you know you use a word and they're like, I think you made up that word, and you're like, you know, all the words are made up, right? Like they literally are they don't exist in nature and people are like no 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 you know what i mean you know by the same thing when you say you know money doesn't actually exist right that's just something we've all agreed to right um and that that is actually a a component of of the book when you know someone's talking about how much money they have um and and then they're reminded it's like no you don't actually have that money that's just marking you know territory the amount of money that you actually have to use is an entirely different thing. And you can watch people's heads explode when they try to understand you know, the concept of, here's what you say you're worth, um, here's what you're actually worth uh, at any one particular moment. And the two are both equally true. Now, um, I, I'm thinking that this book was written at least part by uh, during the pandemic and, and I can't say that I noticed that the pandemic had a, an influence on it, on the, the the content of the book. It seems as seamless and it's and you know different from all your other work, but yet I could recognize the authorial voice. Did the pandemic and all those all the associated hula have anything to any input on this book? Unlike Kaiju, which actually literally takes place in, in COVID times, the Kaiju Preservation Society, which is the book right before this one, um, this one was written without much direct reference to um, the pandemic. Um, but uh, it absolutely had a, uh, the pandemic absolutely had an impact on the writing of the book uh, in no small part because um, I got COVID while I was trying to write it. Um, and uh, that was that was very interesting because when I got the COVID, um, physically, physically, um, it basically felt like a summer cold. I had a little bit of chills. I had a little bit of fever. I was achy for a couple of days, but that was it, right? Um, mentally, it really did a number on me. Um, which was like I could answer emails or I could have a conversation or I could talk like we are talking right now. But when it came up to higher order, like storytelling or plotting or doing all those sorts of, my brain was like, oh no, you're not doing that. Um, and the the good news was my editor, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, um, who had had COVID before me was like, don't uh, overexert yourself. Like, t you know, take a, take time to let your brain recover because I've been here and I know that this is 
a problem. And you don't have to tell me not to do nothing. I am the world's laziest person. Um, so for basically a month after I had COVID, I didn't write at all. I mostly played video games and was on social media. Um, and then about a month later, I was like, oh, okay, well, now I should start writing again. And I wrote, um, you know, 20 or 30,000 words. Um, and then a month later, the COVID fog actually lifted. And then I looked at what I had written in that previous month. And I was like, oh, no, no, that makes no sense at all. So, you know, so there were, it was interesting um, in the sense of, uh, it had that impact of me trying to write this book, uh, losing actually a couple months, um, not being able to do it, and just thinking about what it was like um, all of a sudden to be, um, I don't want to say cut off from the thing that you do, but you know that sort of estrangement from your labor sort of thing of, I am a writer, what happens when I am not able to write at the level that I'm used to writing that. And I think that absolutely informed how I was writing our primary character, Charlie, um, because Charlie had been a writer. Charlie had been a uh, person who had been very secure in his talents. And then life, you know, kind of threw him for a loop, you know, um, not specifically about um, the pandemic per se, but um, his father had gotten ill he was undergoing a divorce. So the level of disruption that uh, the pandemic uh, provided the world in general, um, he was feeling very specifically in the circumstances of his own life for um, different reasons. And so, you know, I, I wrote most of the book or rewrote most of the book after I finally recovered from COVID. And I think that that actually um, informs a little bit of how uh, Charlie feels kind of estranged from what he thought his world was. You know, <clears throat> I was just thinking if there is a theme that illuminates everything I've read by you, and that this that is that it's fun to read. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I, I've got to think that one of the things that must be true is that you are having fun when you, you write. I mean, that is what really carries through in, in anything you do that, that, or that you write is that the reader has a lot of fun in, in that reading environment. And I think that that must reflect your enjoyment of the process itself. It does. Um, but it also reflects, it reflects two things. One, I do enjoy writing. I mean, are you kidding? This is what I get paid to do. This is my life. How awesome is that? Because everything else in the world is work, right? Uh, and, uh, and writing, uh, when I'm not writing, you know what I do for fun? I write, you know, um, I, tomorrow uh, is the 25th anniversary, as we're, as we're having this conversation, tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of me writing my blog, right? Um, and so, you know, and, and I don't get paid for that. You know, it's just literally, I do it because I, I like it. Um, but the other aspect of it is not only do I really enjoy writing, but I am the world's most fickle reader. Um, like I will put a book down, um, two chapters in if I'm not already entertained. Right. Um, because life is short 
and I'm 54 and who knows how many books I have left to read. So I'm not necessarily going to read a book that I feel like I have to really struggle to through unless I have a specific reason for reading it. Um, and so that I kind of feel the same way. If I'm writing and I'm bored with what I'm writing, um, then I can't imagine how much more bored everybody else will be reading it. Um, so for me, that is, you know, that it's a personal thing. It's like, I want to be entertained while I'm writing as well. There's also, quite frankly, you know, aside from my own personal inclinations as a writer and reader, um, there is a reason why Tor Books gave me a 13 book contract, right? They, um, they implicitly have said to me, we understand that you write entertaining books that most people can read, even whether or not they are science fiction fans already. So do that. And here's a big pile of money. Um, that is the implicit deal that I have with Tor. If I want to write something really knotted and complicated and, you know, all that sort of stuff that is inherently non-commercial or, or, you know, uh, anything like that, I will do it somewhere else. You know, my, my gig with Tor is to write entertaining books. And I am fine with that because, like I said, by inclination, that's what I'm going to do anyway. And for the occasional time where I'm like, I'm going to write something that is completely different. Um, that's why I have subter subterranean press to work with. This is why I occasionally will write some short fiction. So it's it's not onerous for me to do that. And the other thing is, is I just have a huge raging ego that's like, hi, I've written you a fun book here. Enjoy. <laughs> so, you know, put it all together. Um, yes, I write entertaining books. I, I write them by inclination. I write them by profession. Uh, I write them uh, because I want to write them and I, I write them because I love attention. Well, also too, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with an entertaining book. And moreover, I think it's, you know, the high fiction and literature function at its highest hit rate because when a lot of people read a book and a book is well-written and enjoyable to read, it makes a lot of people think. And that's, you know, the, the, the purpose of reading is not just to entertain. Sure. Because the, the reader has to do, do some work to get those words into his eyeballs and, and then more work to put those words into his, turn those words into a story. And I think that that is a different thing from any other form of entertainment you participate in it you put yourself into it and i think that uh, at the end of the day you're more helpful to those around you by virtue of having done that because every human being on this planet is a storytelling machine we live and die by the stories we tell about ourselves to ourselves sure and the idea of of putting those stories into words, putting those stories you know, into our brains um, makes us a, a better, fuller human being. Sure. And I think the thing is, is that we, we also need to recognize that there are, within literature in and of itself, there are different tranches of how it's approached and, and what it does and what's meant to be accomplished. When I say specifically, you know, that I write, entertaining uh, 
uh, works. It is not to suggest that different writers doing different uh, ways of writing are not entertaining. They are, uh, they are addressing a, sometimes a different audience. And I think that we all have to recognize that just as we are a vast you know, population of people with different likes and dislikes and tastes and preferences and stuff like that, so too um, writing and so too um, the books that come out. One of the nice things is that you go to a bookstore and there is usually something for everyone. Not everybody has to write like me. Not everybody should write like me. Um, it would drive some writers crazy to try to write the books that I write and, and vice versa. Um, so when I when I talk about the entertainment aspect of it, it is very, you know, it's in, it meant in a very specific way. That said, um, I think that one of the things that you can do is um, by leading with being entertaining, by leading with having uh, uh, an easy slope of approach to the prose and the story and so on and so forth, um, you can funnel in people to the book and give them some ideas that they are not necessarily thinking about beforehand um, that they come out uh, on the other end with having understood, as you mentioned, you know, talking about economics within that, you know, particular uh, book with Kaiju Preservation Society, which was the previous book where you talk, where I talk a lot about biology and um, biological systems and environment stuff and, and how it all works together. Um, it's not, you know, that's not an environmental book. This is not an economics book, but those are concepts that, that we put in. One of the things that I like to, to, to say with regard to my particular books, and this is not, by the way, me sort of uh, having, um, you know, modest, uh, uh, you know, modesty about the books or belittling myself or anything like that, is that my books are um, by design in many ways resolutely middle-brow, right? Um, that, they are, uh, that they are designed for the middle tranche of, of writers, the people who are like, I wanna pick up a book, I wanna be entertained, I want, you know, I wanna laugh, I wanna have some excitement, and, you know, and then I put the book down and I go on with my life. There is a time and place for that, and it's worked out very well for me, as, as we all know. Um, and, uh, but the thing is, even within that tranche of writing, you can drop in ideas, you can drop in concepts, you can drop in things that seem very esoteric um, that will stay with people. A lot of the stuff that I cover in science or economics or you know, social theory or stuff like that, um, someone with a doctorate will be, yes, yes, I already know this, right? Um, but most of us don't have doctorates. Um, you know, and, and if we do have doctorates, it's just in one or two different places. So that, you know, I, I'm very cognizant of the place where my books function. Um, and it's a, it's a interesting sweet spot, both in my own writing capabilities and interests and in, uh, where a readership is. And I think there's a lot of good work to be done there in terms of literary value. Um, that is not necessarily highbrow. It is not necessarily the stuff, like I said, that's gonna win the Pulitzers, although it wins Hugo's. Um, 
and uh, but that will still have value and resonance for an audience because they're approaching uh, concepts in a way that works really well for them. And there's nothing uh, there's nothing better than that, you know. Quite honestly, um, when you are dealing with basically a bunch of people who are smart but don't necessarily uh, have a um, a domain knowledge in the things that you're talking about. When, after uh, speaking with you, one thing I'd say is, boy, have they given you a TV series beyond Stargate Universe yet? I mean, I, it seems like they're the John Scalzi hour, like the Alfred Hitchcock hour. I mean, it, it's an idea whose time has come. I mean, I, I won't disagree with you there, but uh, a, a couple of things. I mean, I have a number of things that are in development in film and TV. As we are speaking, there's still the uh, the SAG-AFTRA and the WGA strikes. So everything is on pause now. Um, but um, it's just a matter of... Um, I get a lot of stuff optioned, but there's always difficulties in getting it to the point where it gets onto the screen. The That said, um, I have been uh, lucky enough to have episodes in every season so far of Love, Death, and Robots, right? Uh, where the short stories that I've done uh, have have showed up there. Uh, and certainly those, those have been absolutely a blast and also have found a, just a surprisingly wide audience. I am, you know, I will wear a Love, Death and Robot shirt and I will go out into the public, you know, and someone will recognize that it's a Love, Death and Robot shirt. And they're like, I love that show. And I'm like, yeah, what what, what do you like about it? What's, what's your favorite episode? And they'll mention some and invariably like either the Three Robots episode um, or when the yogurt took over, you know, or some, you know, some episode that I wrote uh, will get mentioned and I'll be like, that's awesome. Um, and I don't usually be like, well, yes, I wrote that, but sometimes I do. And, um, you know, the fact is that, you know, the, the, the stuff is, the stuff is out there. I would love to, you know, have the Kaiju TV series or the old man's war movie, um, you know, make it to the screen, but there is just so much, um, there's so much else that has to happen that is completely out of my control um, that I just have to accept that that's, that's part of the landscape. And in the meantime, um, I do get the um, option money, um, which has been great. I like to mention that my daughter went to college on the option money from Old Man's War, right? Old Man's War option money paid for my daughter's college education. Thank you, Hollywood. Thank you, John Scalzi. John Scalzi's new novel is Starter Villain. Thank you for joining me, John. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.